welcome to another episode of Thinking Deeper in partnership with Pro Manchester and supported by Bruntwood. Today I'm really excited because I have Manchester royalty in the house. Um, I have the lovely Carl Austin being O-B-E-D-L. I wanted to make sure I got all the letters. You got in. them in. You got welcome them Welcome to the show, Carl. Thank, Thank you. you for being here. Um, can you start off by telling me what's, if you could describe your life journey so far, how would you describe it? I'd say it's been a very interesting roller coaster uh, with many ups and many downs, um, but thankfully managed to sort of just sort of pull my way through it really. And yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been a good life. So far. So far. Still a lot. Still, to still go. a lot to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, if I start off by when the, the time you were in the RAF, which was around ninety one, ninety seven, and you were discharged from the RAF for being gay, what? led you to that moment where you made the decision? What was the tipping point Okay, you to want to tell them? I'll go back a little bit mm. on that from, from sort of wanting to go into the Air Force. So I'd always wanted to go into the Air Force. Uh, sorry, I'd always wanted to be a fireman. Um, but at the time, Great Manchester Fire Service, we weren't recruiting and you had to be 21. And I ended up going to see my brother over in Akrotiri um, and realised that they had a fire service within the Air Force. Now, I then spent 18 months to try and get in the Air Force but there was one little hurdle that was, that was at the back of it all, uh, was the fact that I tried on numerous occasions to come out to my, to my mum that I was gay. I'd known from a very early age, from probably around about six or seven. Um, but my mum just kept saying, it's a phase you're going through. So when I finally got accepted to go in the fire... How so, did you feel about uh, that, though, that your mum kind of didn't get it? Um, well, it was, uh, let's, let's go back to sort of the, the 80s. You know, it was, a, it was a horrible time for people who were LGBT. Um, or questioning, and the fact that you know we had the HIV/AIDS epidemic that was that was around. We had a chief constable telling us that we were, you know, going to die in a cesspit of our own making. Um, and you know, I, I wanted to get married and have kids, and at the time you couldn't. And being gay wasn't a nice, wasn't a word that people would use, and certainly being out was not really sort of out there with people. So it was a time and a place really. So. My mum didn't want to accept it. I didn't say I tried. And I think, you know, if she'd have accepted it, my life would have been completely different. So I ended up... Um, In what way? Well, if I look at what, we've, what I've achieved, what I've done over the years, none of that would have happened because the fact that if my mum had accepted that I was gay at the age of seven or eight or even up, up to being going into the Air Force, I wouldn't have joined the Air Force. Reason being, it was illegal to go in the Air Force for being gay. So when I got accepted and I actually um, was able to go in and I told my mum. My mum said, well, you can't. I was like, why? I said, well, because it's, it's, it's illegal to be gay in the Air Force. I said, well, you've told me it's a phase I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So, and I do remember going to the Careers Information Office on Fountain Street and them asking me, you're not gay, are you? And laughing. And I had to sign a piece of paper to say that I wasn't gay. Well, I wasn't a homosexual. And... Even from the day I joined up, I loved... Did that confuse you, though? Kind of almost needing to be in denial of something that you knew was your truth? Well, I think I, I wanted to go into the Air Force then once... Because I'd spent 18 months trying to get in. I didn't want being gay to define me. Um, and from the, from the day I joined up, I loved the Air Force. However, I was having to live a double, sometimes a treble life. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'd be sort of... Mixing with the other lads, we'd go out, get off with girls. Um, I'd come back to Manchester, um, say, of a weekend. I'd come back on a Friday, come, come back on the train, 
and I'd end up getting back at, say, 9 o'clock, and then this was sort of the early 90s, I would just disappear for the night, um, use your imagination, and I'd then wait until the morning, go home, and then make out that I'd just got back that following morning. You know, there was no dating apps, there was no, we didn't have social media, we didn't have, didn't even really have mobile phones back then in, in sort of early 90s. So it was a very different world back then. And at the age of 20, I'd started seeing this girl in the Air Force. She fell pregnant. Uh, we got engaged on my 21st birthday. Um, but then she had a miscarriage and I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? So I ended up calling off the engagement. There'd also been an aircraft crash at RAF Chivner. Uh, a Hawk aircraft, which is the same as Red Arrows, uh, had crashed and I was one of the first firemen on the scene. Knocked down the main flame mass, got on top of the, 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 the actual aircraft. There was still, it was still burning, it was intensive heat and there was things ricocheting off it. But I managed to, we had to, I pulled the canopy and managed to get uh, one of the pilots out of the, the aircraft. The first one had already ejected, but unfortunately the second one, um, he died about 11 days later through smoke inhalation. But with that, I got the British Humane Society Bronze Award for bravery because it was basically I was sitting on top of a bomb that could have gone off at any time. So then I ended up then getting posted to Belize, Central America, um, did various other, other camps, uh, absolutely loved it, did quite a lot of charity work in the Air Force and came back to, uh, came back to Henlow, then did the marathon a few times. And I was in a lot of secondary duties and in 96, I went to Ascension Islands and did nine months out there. Absolutely loved it. Then started seeing a girl out there, but then when I come back, I did come back and then ended up just getting back to my old habits again, even though there was, those habits were there anyway. Um, so you couldn't do any of the double life leading when there, you were at base, but you would when you came there was a back couple. Home. There was a couple of times at base things happened, and when you wanted to talk to someone about it, it never happened, mm -hmm. you know. Um, we can have a whole debate about men having sex with men, um, and, but not classing themselves as, as a label, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, you know, I suppose that was, that was just part and parcel of what, what went on back then. And then, so when, when I came back from uh, Ascension, I went to Honington, and I then tried to tell my mum and dad again. And I remember it was November uh, 96. Was your dad exactly of the same view as your mum? My mum's view on my dad would be that if he found out, uh, I'd be made homeless. He... So your dad didn't know about the conversation? No, he didn't, he didn't know about right. the, the conversation at all. My mum even said, look, if your dad finds out, he'll, you know, he, he'll kick you out. You know, we, I knew what his views were. You know, everyone was a faggot or a puff. Um, anyone that was a different colour was a word that we don't, well, words that we don't use in this day and age. Uh, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it is, isn't it? But he was, a, he was the typical Afghanit. If, if, we, if we're going to put someone in that, in that character. And randomly, well, weirdly, when I actually said I was telling my dad, Mum's like, no, no, you can't. But I did tell him. And randomly, it's the first time I remember him giving me a hug, giving me a kiss and said, look, son, no one ever told me how to live my life. I'm not going to tell, tell, you, tell you how to live yours. Wow. How did that make you feel? It was weird because I felt I accepted, but then my mum found it hard that he'd accepted it because I think she was trying to protect him, protect me through protecting him, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I remember telling my brothers, and I told our Dave, and he got really upset because he thought I was going to tell him that um, I'd got cancer or something like that, or I was going to die when I built myself up into this sort of, this frenzy. And then when I told my other brother, Paul, he was actually in the Air Force, and his response was, look, 
you can't. If anyone asks you, I don't know because he could get kicked out as well for for, for knowing. So he was in denial. Yeah, he was in completely in denial. So we sort of fell out for a, for a few years. So anyway, going back to um, the camp. So I told a couple of lads. Now I'd been out and open to my mum and dad. I told a few of the lads that I was with, and they were fine about it because um, it was a respect thing. It was all about the fact that I was being open and honest with them. So when I told them, um, there was a few questions, but nothing of the untoward, you know, nothing untoward. But then left it at that, and I think because... Did you feel relieved? Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I felt like, you know, it was like a pressure cooker. You know, I felt as if, like, I'd completely sort of, I could be me, you know. You know, I, I was accepting who I was. But I was still not out within the Air Force because it was illegal. You know, whenever I went anywhere, I had to pretend... And what would be the consequence of that? You'll find out in a minute. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I then, I think because of the fact that the way that I was with myself and I was happy with myself, I'd be coming back to Manchester a lot more or going to Birmingham or going to London and just going, getting out. I was like a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. Um, but that was probably to my uh, demise in a sense. So I then started seeing a lad in Manchester and that was in sort of in the January 97. And at the same time, so I'd, I'd questioned beforehand about, you know, being in the Air Force because I couldn't be myself. But I then got my promotion through. So I was then, which was unheard of in such a short time, you know, six years, because I had exemplary service. I kept getting nines and specially recommended for promotion, which I'd got over, like, for four years. So then I, I then got promoted to Afton, which was in between Belgium and Holland. I hadn't taken up the post yet, but then in the April... Um, a lad that I'd started seeing in the January, he then phoned the Air Force and told them that I was gay. He shocked you? He did. On, and I think it was more to do with the fact that he just thought I wouldn't get posted away. Not the fact that I'd get kicked out. You were out. joking. So then, in the April of 97, I then got um, asked to go to uh, OC Personal Services flight, the officer commander. And I went was in full uniform and I was taken to a room. There was him, there was a padre, who's a vicar, and the RAF police were there. And they just sat me down. And it was, SEC Austin, do you have homosexual tendencies? And I froze for a minute and that's... You had no idea you were about to walk into this room and all this was going to... Did you know at that point that Yes, you, that I, yeah, your... he, he, he told me that he'd, he'd told them. He'd done the deal. Um, so I was like, wow. What happened? How do you prepare yourself for that, Carl? Well, what was your self-talk at the time? It was very much a case of, I, I know, I know that if I'd have said no when they'd asked me that question, it'd have been, thank you very much, just someone's made an allegation, so we just need to follow it through, just because of the fact that, you know, this was 1997, um, again, the world had changed, you know, in, in, in every other walk of life, um, being LGBT was accepted within the workplace, in, in a sense. Um, but, yeah, so then when they asked me, I just froze, and then they asked me again, and I burst out crying. And in that split second, my life changed, because they then told me that I could go to prison for six months, um, because it was still um, a prisonable offence within the armed forces. And... I was then warned that anything I say now will have an effect on everything else. However, 
um, they decided not to, uh, not to send me to the prison. They suspended me from that moment on. Uh, I was given roughly about 10 minutes to go to my room, get, I was given three boxes, told to pack them, and they would get delivered to an address in the UK. Uh, and my services were no longer required because I was incompatible to service life. What was going on in your head? Without swearing? No swearing. Um, no, it was literally... So I'd lost everything. Um, I'd lost all my... As I say, there was no communication then. I couldn't say bye to anybody. Um, I couldn't... You know, I'd, I'd built up a career, an exemplary career. Um, I'd built up um, a group of friends. You know, it's my career. I'd signed up for 22 years. And everything was just literally taken away from me at that moment. I remember driving outside out the uh, <clears throat> I remember driving out the camp gates and just sitting there and crying for about three hours, thinking, what am I gonna do now? Because I'd now failed. Um, I'd let people down. I'd let my mum and dad down. You know, I was twenty-four. And so I sat there, and it was a case of what do I do now? And I decided I would come back to Manchester. So I ended up coming back to Manchester, but then moving in with the lad, because I had nowhere to go. Um, and then one night, he said he needed a bit of space, so I went and gave him a bit of space. And then I came back the following morning to find him in bed with his ex-boyfriend. So it was like, okay, so this is gay life, is it? Um, so it was a bit of a shot to the system. And so then I moved back in to my parents' house uh, in Crumsall, in a little... You know, in, it wasn't even the bedroom I'd grown up in because my mum and dad had moved into that. It was a two house. Two, you know, there was five of us in a two bedroom house. Uh, so three of us had one bedroom. Cozy. Yeah, very cosy on bunk beds <laughs> and fold down beds. Um, but yeah, I moved back in uh, with mum and dad. Uh, and that was tough because, you know, I'd gone from the Air Force. I then challenged, I, I did challenge the Air Force. I wrote to Tony Blair because he was the Prime Minister at the time. I wrote to Graham Stringer, who was my MP. Uh, or the MP for Crumsall anyway at the time. And also I wrote to uh, the MOD. And each letter I got back was pretty much the same um, to tell me that, unfortunately, it's a policy that the government have. Um, being homosexual is incompatible and you've admitted to being a homosexual, so your service is no longer required. Um, and it went on as an admin discharge, whereas some people, um, it's, gone on, it's a criminal record uh, for some people because of the way that it was classed. Um, for being a homosexual. And you know what, I'm more offended with the word homosexual than I am with any derogatory term that people want to call me. So, because it's written against me in, in that way. So I'd gone from, so I'd gone from the, the Air Force and then within about sort of three or four, probably about two, two months, I'm there stacking shelves in Asda, um, in Berry Market side, just to try and find something to do while what I was thinking about. So then I applied for Greater Manchester Fire Service. And because it was a natural progression, a lot of people who do leave the, the, fire, uh, the RAF go into the fire service or leave the military. A lot of them try and get in either the police, prison service or the fire service. So I applied for the fire service. Um, I never told them that I was get, I'd been discharged or I'd been kicked out. I, um, I just played the game and sort of, you know, and I got in on my own merits, I managed to get through the, the sexual selection process. Once I got my contract, I then told them that I was gay. They turned around and said, you can't be out in the fire service because there's no gays in the fire service. So I was like, hang on, this is, this is a bit, bit weird. So 
I then, I, I joined up, I was told not to tell the other recruits, but after about three weeks, I ended up telling them because I wasn't going from one institution that I loved to then go into another. And this caused a massive headache then for the fire service. Because, not the lads, it was the hierarchy, it was the officers, um, the white. Always the, the white, yeah, isn't yeah, you know, the, 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 you know, Yeah, it was, it was, you know, I, I've, I do talks now for the fire service and I speak to them and, and, and it's quite a culture shock for them to sort of hear this, but they, they admit exactly what I've, I'm saying. The fact that, so what they had to do then, because I was now out as the first out gay person who was joining the fire service, because this was during my training course, they then had to f come up with some equality and diversity strategy thing. Um, and they ended up pulling together a husband and wife team who happened to know someone who was gay. They don't even know whether or not they liked that person, but they knew someone who was gay and they became the EDI for the fire service back in 1998. That's crazy. But what's crazy... So they didn't consult you, possibly, to help them progress now into what's going to be more and more accepted in society. They went to two random people that just happened to know a random gay person. Yeah, and what they did, they then... Must, I'm, I'm hoping that they did some training themselves <laughs> and did some sort of a thought process in it because then they what they did was they ended up going to all the stations that I could get posted to, to speak to them, to say that this is how you speak to a gay, this is how you react oh to a gay, God, this is how you treat a gay. And this is, this is, this is you know, this is 1998. Species. It is. Um, and it was weird, because normally, when you're so on when your you training... When you heard that, how did you feel about it? I just found it odd. I was just like, I, I, because I'd not known any different either, and because equality and diversity had never been a part of my life at that point, um, I didn't know it was so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm listening to your story, and, and obviously there's, there's a huge amount of pain and sadness and frustration, but I don't see any anger in you at all. No, because I think I've always, I've always ended up turning negatives into positives. Um, and I always think things happen for a reason. And, and I also, you know, a, I think we can build ourselves up, and I think if you do keep going down that sort of feeling sorry for yourself and the, and the pity, you, it only affects you. It only affects your mental health. You know, there's times where I suffer with anxiety and, and so on, but that's probably anxiety that I've created myself. So with the fire service, you know, I ended up staying for about 18 months, but I knew which station I was going to within sort of the first three or four weeks, whereas everyone else had to wait until um, they'd done the full training course. Because what had happened was, they, on White Watch, White Watch at Moss Side, it was literally two minutes away from my house. Normally you end up going at least 20 miles away from your house as a fireman, because if you come across a road traffic accident or there's a house fire, you wouldn't know the people affected. But however, they, they, they put it right on my doorstep. And that was partly because White Watch Moss Side had the first black firefighter, had the first Asian firefighter, now it was getting the first gay firefighter. It was like the dysfunctional watch. You know what I mean? So I ended up staying in for about 18 months and I hated Please every minute I, hate, I hated every minute of it. <laughs> I literally hated it. And it was because of the fact that I joined for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, the discipline wasn't the same as the Air Force. So I, I then, because the shift was two days, two nights, four off, I was doing like extra work. So I was doing some promotion work, a bit of TV extra work, a bit of modelling, you know, just bits and pieces to sort of fill those times in. And I just thought, you know what, I can do this myself. So I decided that I was going to leave. So I told one of the lads that I was leaving, and he said, don't just leave. He said, what you need to do is go off on the sick, 
and then after three months they'll call you in for a meeting don't come in for the meeting then what you do is they'll come to your house and then when they come to your house just say that someone made a homophobic comment about you and that you know it's made you depressed it's filled you with anxiety and they'll just want they'll give you a big payoff you'll still get your pension um, and I'm like I don't want to live my life like that you know, what, 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 what am I achieving out of that? Yeah. You know, a, no a quick fix. But it, it's, exactly, you know, it's exactly the same as, as, as that. So I just left, um, and which was random considering, you know, I think, in, I think even in the last sort of 20 years of, of knowing the fire service, I think there's probably only two people that have ever left the fire service before doing the full 30 years, because it is a career. You know, it is something that people join up, and even though some of them hate it, all they're thinking about is the pension. And it's literally the back, that's security. security. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I left and set up post promotions. And the funny thing about that was, so I managed to blag the Manchester Evening News um, with my promotions company. So I had that's all this team. Yes. So I had all this team <laughs> said that, you know, we, we do in-store demonstrations, in-store promotions. And we started doing it, uh, selling the Evening News on a Friday in-store for them. We then managed to do some of the street sellers in the city centre. And the Metro launched in the October of uh, 99. So we then, they asked us to get 30 staff. I managed to find 30 staff. But then the, the day before, they wanted 100 staff. So it's like, how am I going to find 100 people? So it was a case of just bring your friends, bring anyone with you. If anyone can, you can. And we managed to do it. We had, 100 and, we had 140 people in the undercar park at Harden Street at the MEN. And... Literally, this again before mobile phones, and we had loads, loads of people, uh, paper just written up all over the wall. But a lot of them were, were, were firemen who just wanted a, a quick 50 quid in the, the morning. Irony. It was, it was <laughs> the people who had, so, and it was some of the officers as well. You know, some of them who. What was going on in your head then at that time? I just needed people. I didn't care who, I didn't <laughs> care where they came from. Um, and I'm completely honest about that, you know. And, and it was a time when they were classed as self employed. It was a case of cash in hand because you could get away with it back then as long as they signed a disclaimer. But, but um, at this point, you are now Carl Austin being the person. Carl Austin, that yeah. Always, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that yeah. was not in the picture yet. But, you know, you were true to yourself and true to other people in terms of who you were and hopefully in a better place. Yeah, I mean, I felt happy. You know, you know I was 20, how old would I have been? So 26, 27, setting up, still. you know, setting up a. Uh, is this when promotions. Mr. No, no, that 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 come well. So partly, so in ninety nine, two thousand, it was a joint year for Mr. Gay UK, and I entered um, in Manchester, won Mr. Gay Manchester, and then overall came second um, as Mr. Gay UK, ninety nine, two thousand. But then it made me think a lot more about it, and I think the fact I then looked at what I'd done in the past, and the fact that there was no. And I I'm never going to, I would never say I'm a role model in that sense, but there, was never, there wasn't any role models um, for, for gay people at the time. All we had back then was your Larry Grayson, your Julian Clary's, you know, your, your Sean Tully's of today and, you know, and Owen Wynne Evans, you know, very camp, very flamboyant. You know, I love Owen to bits and, and Anthony. Um, so I'm not criticising that, but I'm just saying that was the only people that people saw. Not a true representation. Absolutely of the not. Spectrum, yeah. And then when you spoke to people, um, about gay people, all they would say in their offices or their workspaces, you know, it'd be about limp wrists, it'd be the muscle Marys or it'd be mincing queens. So I wanted to change that. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I've done, you know, I've done packing driving, I've done delivery, I've done been the Air Force, been the fire service, I've stacked shelves and I'm normal and I'm being, and I'm gay. So why can't it be just accepted? 
So in 2001, I went for it again, but I played it completely different. Um, it wasn't about the beauty show. It wasn't about a beauty pageant. It was about um, being me. And so I ended up going to quite a lot of the different Pride events around the, around the country at the time and to different venues and spoke to people. And that year it was a telephone vote. And I won Mr. Gay Manchester again, but I won it in Essential this time. And I then went up to round, but I treated it a bit like an election campaign and spoke to people and asked what they wanted. Did you already have the kind of politics in your mind then at that point? No, no, not, not, not at all. Not entered your brain? Not entered my brain. I mean, okay. I, you know, I was, as a kid, I'd done like leaflets for the Labour Party from the age, you know, I used to leaflet for Richard Lees before he even, before he even came to Crumsall, wow. you know, so that's how far back we're going. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's at 83 and I was doing that from the age of five or six and delivering leaflets for the Labour Party. Um, and probably illegally, but... <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anyone. No. Uh, it's all about the workforce. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, yeah, so then I was speaking to people and then I got involved with quite a few LGBT, char LGBT charities. And I then, in 2001, the, the competition was held in Manchester. And if you, if you were choosing it for people's bodies, there was people that looked a lot better, you know, a lot better looking. But then I won in 2001. And I won with a really high majority with it being the phone votes. So I think that was a massive turning point. Uh, it, was all a it was a big turning point as well for my mum because my mum then accepted me for being gay right. uh, because she saw that, oh, it's okay to be gay. Uh, and my family were there as well Did it at the competition. It helped my confidence um, in, in a way that, in a, just in a way that I felt more accepted rather than just sort of just going out and having fun and you know, being that kid in a sweet shop at the age of 24, 25, 26, because I'd missed out mm -hmm. from being sort of the age of 18, 19. Um, even though I'd been out, but I couldn't be me, you know, mm -hmm. get away with the things that I was doing. So then what I'd realised was I then spent that year as Mr Gay UK, um, doing a lot of work with different charities um, and engaging a lot with the community. And I'm still passionate about Mr Gay UK now, and I still think it has, a, I, don't, I don't think the competition goes now. But for me, it was very much about the fact that, you know, if you're in Manchester, if you're in Birmingham, if you're in London or any of the big cities, it was great to be gay because you had a big gay scene. You know, queer as folk had been on the street, uh, on the screens that Russell T Davies wrote about gay life. And I'll be honest, I was probably all three characters in that <laughs> um, at some point of, of my life. Question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the same as it's the same with Ruth Ritchie. Um, but, but, but the the thing about that was, you know, if you were gay living in Shropshire, if you were gay living in Derby, if you were gay living in Wigan, if you were living, you know, Rochdale, Oldham, you know, it wasn't accepted. There was nothing for you. Um, and also the fact that the, you know, there might be some one night on a Thursday night, if the month had 31 days in a back room of a bar, it might be a gay night for people. Yeah. Uh, so it was about raising the awareness. And that's something that I've done from then. And I think, bizarrely, from, from that and from the things I've done, and then getting in, I did get involved in local politics in sort of 2005. Um, and I got involved in local politics because I was now living in the city centre. And I just found myself moaning about things. You, I was you became the voice, didn't you? Yeah, because I think, I, yeah, when you say it like that, I'd never thought of it like that. But yeah, and I think I'd, I'd, I'd managed to sort of speak up for people. So I was complaining to the council at the time, um, at the time it was Lib Dems in the city centre, and I remember meeting one of the councillors who were named nameless, 
but um, because I did a walkabout visit with them and explained some of the issues about, you know, dog fouling, the state of the litter bins, the state of the canal, cars parking in cycle lanes, the things that get on your nerves, you know, the day-to-day -day bits that mm -hmm. annoy you. So, and then when I contacted them to say, you know, what's happening with it, they'd forgot that they'd even met me. I'm like, okay, so if I'm going to do it, do it myself. So, as I say, my links to the Labour Party go right back to being a child and comes to the Labour Club. So, I got involved with the local Labour Party. I remember meeting Pat Carney, having a, having a cup of tea at the, at the Midland Hotel with him. Uh, and we discussed it. So, I got involved then with the local Labour Party in the city centre. And that was sort of 2005... And I was doing it sort of 2000, up to 2008 then. I mean, you did so well by 2016. Yeah, so in 2000... So you're now 44. Yeah, so 2010, I stood for Burnage. 2011, I managed to get elected as, as a Labour councillor. And then I became lead member for cycling and also lead member for, for gay men um, during that time. But then I looked, at the, I looked at the city and I looked at, you know, we've got a Lord Mayor. You know, someone who's supposed to be representative of the communities of, you know, the 800,000 people that we've got in Manchester itself. And I looked at this wall and I literally looked at all these pictures and they're all the old paintings and even up-to-date up ones. Um, you know, there's the occasional difference, but majority, they all look like the fat controller out of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> uh, all, you know, white-haired. They've been in the council 30-odd years. So you decided... Mm. It's got to be a change. I decided I'm going to do that. And you became Lord Mayor. I applied. I, I, I put myself forward in 2014-15, um, and I lost it by one vote to Paul Murphy, who won it. Who was a it was a stereotypical Lord Mayor, but brilliant at it. Uh, I love Paul to bits. Uh, and then I literally then put. I then sort of. I fed everybody for a year the council because you voted on by the council. So I told them why I wanted to do it. Um, and a lot of them were like, well, you, you know, you, you, you've not been on the council that long. You don't know much about the city. Um, I but I managed to give them... feel your passion. Yeah, no, and I think that was, in the end, I think that's what got me through. Um, the fact that I wanted to make a difference. And I think there's probably some people who did vote to see me fail. Because um, that's the nature of the beast. Great. You know. Um, <laughs> Especially when you win. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, so... 2016, I became the first openly gay Lord Mayor of Manchester and the youngest uh, Lord Mayor. Uh, th at the time, the council didn't want to say about me being openly gay. They just wanted to say new Lord Mayor. Um, but I pushed on that because they, they said that if we said openly gay Lord Mayor, then the council that opened up the questioning about the fact that, oh, you know, if we had a gay, gay Lord Mayor before. So I then I did an interview with Jen Williams, who was brilliant. Uh, I did a full um, you know, I, I said everything. I was completely transparent with Jen. And she did this brilliant uh, um, article. So it was, it was the, the whole sort of thing. Because I know that if I'd not done that, on the Sunday, it'd have been like, in the mail on Sunday, it'd have been like, you Lord Mayor of Manchester, gay porn, shock. You know, I've never done porn, but <laughs> it would have been in there. Do you know what I mean? Because of the fact of the, the pictures from Mr Gay UK. Yeah. So I was just completely transparent. And, you know, one of the very first engagements I did was for the LGBT Foundation. Um, and what I wanted to do in my head was my year was all going to be about diversity, equality, inclusion, respect. I realised very quickly, um, because I thought that I wasn't going to get invited to mosques, I wasn't going to get invited to certain faiths and religious buildings and schools. I thought I knew that. However, it was the opposite. I was getting invited to everything, you know, and I was having open discussions and I was even telling people my life story at, up to that point. Um, so the struggle's similar, it's just the context is different, but if, you, if you're looking at diversity, 
and thinking you're not going to go to the mosques, actually, when you think about what they go through as a struggle, same, same it thing. It's exactly the same thing. We all went through the same thing. The context was just different, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember doing, um, I remember going to a, a black solicitors network. Um, Sally Penny invited me to that. Yeah. Uh, I think Jeff Thompson was, was talking. Um, and I wasn't, I was literally supposed to be there to meet and greet. You know what Sally's like. It's a case of like, oh, just come along. <laughs> You'll be fine, Carl. Um, and anyways, they ended up getting me up and I'd listened to everything that had been said on the panel for about 45 minutes. Um, and then they got me up and I could relate to everything they'd said. It was just their content was of a person of colour. Mine was about my sexuality. Absolutely everything else was the same. Um, so I, I then realised that. So yeah, my whole year was devoted to diversity, equality, inclusion, but it was also about the fact that there was LGBTQ plus people in every community. So promote everybody and about cohesion. So you're just casting the wide the yeah. net wider, basically. Yeah, and breaking down those barriers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, normally you go to about 350 engagements as Lord Mayor. We did 1150, uh, 1126 wow. between them. So, you know, Simon must have been absolutely knackered as well. <laughs> you know, bless him. Because, you know, he, he was brought on board uh, to, to be the Lady Mayoress. And let's talk about Simon and Carl Austin away from the, the, the letters and the politics. And who, who is that person? Um, that, right, so, as I say... I'd always said that going, I, I didn't want to join the Air Force, being gay, because it would define, I didn't want it to define me. However, being kicked out has defined me. You know, I've spent my life for the last 25 years um, working on that. And I've known Simon, well, I went to school with his brother. Uh, then we'd not seen each other for, for years. And then I randomly, I was in, I was in New York at the time um, with a lad that I was seeing, but it wasn't going anywhere. He sent me this message. I was like, okay. So we arranged to meet up. That was 2004. Um, we kept our relationship secret from his family for the first six months because I thought I was going to get beat up because he's <laughs> younger than me. You know, there's 10, 11 years in it, um, which, you know, age, age is just a number now, especially Absolutely. as you get older. Uh, but it seemed to make a difference then. And so, yeah, so we've been together since 2004. We've had a couple of blips, um, but they were like really early on because one, I thought the grass was greener. He thought the grass was greener. But you always go back to what you know. You know, you, you go back to what you know best. Well, the grass is and greener where you water it. So yeah, I think that's yeah. what you realise in the end, isn't it? Absolutely. And then we worked at it, you know, and you know, for the you know, as I say, that was sort of in two thousand five and two thousand seven, so it was nothing biggie then. So we got married in two thousand and fifteen. Um, and then in two thousand seventeen we well we we'd gone through the adoption process. Um, but it just didn't work out. We'd gone through all the training and we'd done all the classes. We'd and passed through that. Process. It's horrible. It's yeah. an absolute nightmare. And I think, you know, you're made to feel like crap when you're going through this process. I'll be careful what I say, but I think, you know, this is, it's, it's a tough one um, because, you know, you've got all these social workers and, the, you know, I don't think sometimes they realise that it's people's lives that they're playing with as well. Yeah, it's absolutely. not just the child's life, it's the, yeah. the adults. And, and you're made to feel that, you know, I'd like to think that we'd gone into it knowing that we had finances behind us, knowing that we had a spare bedroom, knowing that we've got everything, we've got the love to give, and that's the key thing, the love. Um, but yeah, it didn't work out. So then on New Year's Eve on 2017, I've known uh, this lesbian couple for many, many years. Uh, I just sent them a message. Remember that conversation we had uh, seven years ago about having a child? What do you think about it? And then we just then picked that conversation. We spent uh, probably about 18 months discussing it, discussing how we were going to do it. And it was 
you know, how you think it is, the old turkey baster. <laughs> yeah. um, we won't go into too much detail there. No, that, we can save that for a different event. Um, and the, the um, yes, yeah, so then we had um, Willow on the 2nd of April um, 2019. And she's three and a half now. Well, just three and a half. Uh, and, you know, she's absolutely amazing. Love her. And what's, if you remember the conversation I had with my mum when I was sort of early teens, uh, and I didn't want to be gay because I didn't want, because I wanted to get married and have children. If we look at where we've come with inequality now, I'm married with child of our own, you know, yeah. making. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, but that is through people championing LGBT rights. And I think, you know, I feel really proud that I've had a part in playing that in, in, in any aspects that I've done with, you know, with the LGBT Foundation, with the work that I'm doing now with Fighting With Pride, when we look at the injustices that were done for, for serving personnel who did lose their jobs, lose their families, lose their houses, lost their pensions, lost their, you know, lost everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it took the government 20 years to apologise. Um, they've now only just got the medals back. Uh, but I was, and the reason why I got involved with Fighting With Pride was because on the 20th of, uh, sorry, on the 12th of January 2020, I was in an event in London, in Westminster, and we had an apology. But I'm in a room full of people from the armed forces, and they're all saying about how brilliant the armed forces is today, and I completely agree. You know, and, and I do. I'm still as passionate about the armed forces uh, today as I was back then. Um, still love the RAF, and the. But I realised that they haven't got a clue of what had actually gone on, and the fact that we need to raise that awareness. You know, during LGBT History Month. It's great to put out a video that says that the RAF marched in a parade, but actually it's the wrong video because it's actually marched in 2004 because I got them here in Manchester in 2004 from working with them, yet the lowest state was 2008. So, you know, so it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mixed bag when it comes to stuff like that. But me and Simon, yeah, really happy. You know, he works for Great Manchester Police. He was brilliant as my Lady Mayor's consort, whatever you want to say. I'm sure he'd have a few words of me. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I think someone called him an escort once, which, you know, <laughs> no, which didn't go down well. Like no. That, no. Um, just to kind of round up on a on a final thought, really, um, what would be like your words of wisdom to anybody that is listening? Because struggle doesn't really go away, you know. For people, for some people, it's every day. For some people, it's you know a time of their life. What kind of words of wisdom would you give? that person that might be struggling at that time that's probably been on a very similar dark moment as you to get them out of it? Uh, never give up. Believe in yourself. Um, I've, never, I've never been a massive, believe it or not, I've, ever, I've never been a massive talker when it comes to my feelings with stuff like that. I just sort of managed to go through. Um, go to the gym. Make sure you, you know, you're getting exercise because, of, because mental, sorry, physical fitness helps your mental fitness. Um, big believer in that. And I think, you know, Again, yeah, it's, it's a lot of it is believing yourself and, and try not to get worked up. You know, it may seem at that time that you're at your lowest, but things will get better, you know, and, and it is that thing. And if you are someone that does has got someone to talk to, make sure you do talk to them. Make sure you go out there. Don't just think that um, that everything around you came in. I mean, during COVID, you know, the pandemic, one thing that I really struggled with I, I have FOMO. I think, you know, I think you're the same, you know, it was, you know, fear of missing out. And, and it is that thing in my diary, my calendar, and to see it, just the, 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 the meetings and the, the events that I was going to, all just literally going out. It was like a movie, you know, when you see it going out. And then 
I've been working in the kitchen for, for a good part of the first, or the whole first lockdown. And then the second lockdown, I decided, no, I want my kitchen back. So put the kitchen back together and I went into a bedroom, uh, one of the spare bedrooms we've got. And literally, it's a white bedroom. All the walls are white with a couple of pictures on. I had these two bright lights shining at me. And I had this pile of paperwork that was probably just about, about 20 pages. But you know what? It felt like a thousand pages. And I just felt that I could never get through this. So I then had to get myself back out of that room. Um, and I, even when I go in there now, I still have a little anxiety. Even when it's at the bedroom, I still have a little bit of anxiety because I remember what it was like then. There must be a lot of people in that situation. And it is a case of having to get out and sort of make sure, you know, for your own mental health and well-being, get back out there. And, and if it is a case of even going to a shared office or going out and, and sharing someone else's, then you Connecting do that. Connecting with people. Yeah, connect really with people. Important. Yeah. And I think that was something I hadn't got in my head, the fact that I'd go in that room at sort of 7.30 in the morning. I could be there till 10, 11 o'clock at night and shut myself out. Lost. And, and lost in this pile of paperwork and the amount of emails and rubbish emails. You know, people seemed to be, I think people went through that stage of, oh, we just need to, to email someone to, to justify why they're in work. Yeah. Um, and and then, the whole element of doomsday, I'm sure, with people not really understanding the consequences of COVID and the fear. I mean, I, I have to be honest, I loved it because it just meant I got a chance to reset and just recharge and, you know, take stock of where I was in life. Uh -huh. And so for me, it was almost a, I found the time that I've always complained I never had. Yeah. So now I need to use it efficiently. Thank you so much. No, no, absolutely. You were amazing. Um, your honesty, the fact that you were so open, so vulnerable, we got to see a real side to you that I know everybody that sees you normally, whether it's at events or, you know, wherever, they just see this really happy, smiley, you know, happy-go-lucky guy. And, it, the, you know, there's a lot of depth to who you are as a person and, and the struggle that you've shared with us today, you know, I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs>